Welcome to DDD Melbourne. It was quite amazing to see the speed at which all of the tickets for this event just disappeared this year. You guys obviously didn't look and see who the keynoter was before you signed up, did you? Anyway, thank you for coming. Let's thank the sponsors who made this event possible. Thank you for taking your time out of your weekend to come and enhance your knowledge. This talk is about consuming REST APIs. And it doesn't matter whether you're a full-blown Restafarian or you think Swagger is pure awesome. There's going to be content in this that I think is applicable to you. My name is Daryl Miller. And I am Canadian. Well, I was actually born in England. But really that just means that when I say I'm sorry, I don't really mean it. But in reality, my true allegiance is to HTTP. Let me tell you a little bit of a story, trip down memory lane as it were. Almost 10 years ago, I was in my mid-30s. And I was tired of chasing frameworks. I was in the middle of upgrading web services soap toolkit for VB6. Because I was upgrading some hardware based on XP embedded and Windows CE. And I had to keep the soap libraries in sync between the client and the server. And I was just longing for them to release WCF to solve all my distributed systems problems. Well, as you can imagine how that turned out. HTTP was the underpinnings of all of these technologies. And it worked for the web. And it really had not changed in a long time. And it didn't look like it was going to change anytime soon. So I decided to invest some time in really learning how it works and why it works. And it's paid off tremendously for me. To this day, HTTP really has not changed. Yep, they released a whole bunch of new specifications, but those specifications are really just clarifications of what they meant to write in the first place. Even HTTP2, which is now coming together, doesn't really change HTTP semantics. It simply makes it more efficient to use HTTP. For the next 40 minutes or so, we're going to talk about consuming HTTP APIs. What I think we're doing wrong and how I think we can do it better. And in the spirit of my love for HTTP, no talk would be complete without an obscure reference to or a reference to obscure status code. The content I will be presenting should be considered as coming with a 203 status code. So 203 means non-authoritative, i.e. the content has been transformed, processed, interpreted in some way before reaching the client. In this case, the content's been interpreted by me. You have been warned. As this talk is called Consuming REST APIs, and because I always seem to gravitate towards food analogies when talking about APIs, I decided we should make this a theme. So here's today's menu. For appetizers, we're going to talk, discuss where we are today, state of the API economy, and the use of client SDKs, which is probably the most common way that people use to consume APIs, the most common technique people use to consume APIs. For main course, we're going to discuss various challenges and solutions. We'll discuss the challenges of consuming a REST API when people have so many different interpretations of what REST means. We're going to talk about the effect of change in APIs and the reasons why change occurs and why you need to protect your clients from changing APIs or your client applications from changing APIs. We're going to talk about code reuse. 
It's a real high priority goal in software development. We'll discuss the constructs of HTTP that deliver reuse most effectively and the best way of achieving that on the web. And one of the primary goals of REST is independent evolution of system components, being able to independently evolve the client and the server through the use of, use of loose coupling. But the client has some fairly unique properties in this coupling relationship, and we'll discuss some of the secrets that not many people talk about very much. We will discuss some architectural concepts to consider when building clients that help make your clients more adaptable to change. And then for dessert, we will talk about some additional resources that uh, I've created over time, some talks that I've done, some software libraries, tools that you can use, various other places you can look. You may have heard of this term, the API economy, and it's made up of companies who sell APIs as, as a product. And they sell these APIs to companies who want to integrate externally provided functionality into their own products. And Stripe is the canonical example of a company whose only product is its API. So companies can now build price by combining services provided by other companies, and it's becoming a massive industry. In programmable web, there are over 13,000 publicly accessible APIs listed in their direct in their dictionary. Salesforce generates 50% of its $3 billion revenue from its APIs. Distributed APIs as an integration technique is becoming so popular, we now have this notion of microservices where people are starting to talk about using the same integration technique, but within their own walls, between services to make up their own product. So we have this API economy, but how do we access it? Most developers consume APIs via client SDKs that have been provided by the API provider. Now, there's issues here. Let's consider this our analogy of the salad. Salads are healthy to eat until you cover it with dressings and croutons and cheese. So you need to be wary of hiding this HTTP API that we have behind this layer, this abstraction of this SDK. The problem is SDKs are considered essential by API providers for developer adoption. Everybody, there's no point having an API if nobody uses it, right? But the problem is in, in how these SDKs are built. It's very easy to negate a lot of the benefits of that API. You can very easily turn the HTTP API into just an RPC wrapper. Now, I use the word RPC cautiously because a lot of people use RPC to describe the way somebody designs an API, but in actual fact, RPC has nothing to do with the server side. It has everything to do with the client side. If you go back to the original definition of the term, it's about allowing access to a remote resource by making it look like a procedure call to the client developer. And that's exactly what many SDKs do. They simply provide a service wrapper that provides a bunch of function calls. And when you call them behind the scenes, this magic happens and a remote call is made. That is the definition of remote procedure call. And the danger is, is what you're actually doing is just moving the point of coupling instead of the client coupling to the HTTP API of the API provider, they're now coupling to the API of the SDK. Another major problem that API providers run into in dealing with client SDKs is it's really hard to build good quality SDKs because you need to support multiple different SDKs. You know, you, you could choose the, well, we'll just focus on the main platforms that our customers use. And then while well, those other platforms, we'll have a class of them that are kind of secondary platforms they support. And they'll be second class citizens, they'll be the last to update. Or you can take the other approach, which is becoming common now, which is, well, we're, we'll use an API description language and we'll code generate those those clients. But it's it's really hard to generate good quality code, client code, 
especially across multiple platforms, you often will end up with kind of this lowest common denominator type of solution. And the question is, how can we afford to build these good quality libraries to consume our APIs, to help our consumers get up to speed with them, and still support many platforms? I mentioned earlier about the dangers of creating the server wrapper style SDK that moves the coupling between the client application down to the SDK itself. So when we make changes to the SDK, we potentially can break the client because of this tight coupling. If you can, sometimes this is the right solution though. And if we go back to our salad dressing metaphors, if you can maintain complete control of both the ingredients of the salad dressing and how much salad dressing you're gonna put on the salad, then maybe you're fine. And in terms of our SDKs, if you own both ends of the wire, if you can control the deployment of that SDK and control the deployment of the server so they can be coordinated, like if it's the same team who, who are building the client application and who are building uh, the server, then you're fine, right? Okay, it becomes more difficult if you like have to push it through an app store because there's a delay. But if you're building, um, can the can the user choose not to update that, that component? Um, is there a delay? Like maybe there's some delay, but maybe if there's not, like if if we have a JavaScript client, right? A JavaScript client that is consuming its own API. So we push an update to the API, we push the new website up, and the JavaScript gets downloaded immediately. In those cases, like the, the, the synchronization of client and server is very is almost simultaneous. So it's probably not a problem. Uh, the, you do have to look out for the longer term and say, well, what happens next week? Right? Let, let, we have an API that we've built for our own consumption our own JavaScript's using it, but somebody comes along and says, ah, uh, you know what? We have a mobile app, or we have a third-party app that would like to access that API too. And you're like, yeah, sure, we've got an API, no problem. Okay, fine. But then the next time you go to push an update to your server, your JavaScript client's fine because you have those two updates synchronized. But what about that poor third-party API? So all of a sudden, that can now become an anchor to deployment, and all of a sudden, you can't update the server, and now you can't even update your JavaScript client because it's being held back by the API, which is dependent on the third party or the mobile app that's using that API. So if you have control over all these components, then maybe a tightly coupled client SDK is not a problem. And this brings us to our chef's suggestions for this section. Don't assume provided SDK is the best option. Chances are the API provider will give you one, but you don't have to use it. In fact, you'll probably find and often you're given the option of, oh, here's our SDK or here's our REST API. And when you go to the REST API, they'll have their curl examples. That's like, oh, what? Like, you're either going to do everything for me and give me no flexibility if I pick the SDK, or I have to do everything myself. That's not a good balance. So this all or nothing proposition kind of sucks. And understand your deployment constraints. Understand the coupling that is being introduced between the client and the server by using the SDK. And recognize what your limitations are with regards to how easily you can keep client and server deployments in sync because that's going to affect the decision as to whether or not you should use their SDK. While consuming APIs, you're going to bump into many different definitions of what people claim as REST. And it's useful to understand why there are these different definitions, and I'd like to try and distinguish between what I think is important and what isn't. So here's my chocolate chip cookie analogy for REST. Kids love to eat chocolate chip cookies. But what defines a chocolate chip cookie? Well, it's a cookie and it has chocolate chips in it, right? But there are many, many different recipes for chocolate chips. Some people throw some extra things in, some people use it with make with butter, some make it with margarine. There are many different ways of making it. 
and they're all valid. The challenge is developers, we like prescriptive guidance. We want a recipe for REST. And there just isn't one. The problem is it's, it's called an architectural style. There is, it's not an implementation. It's not a specific design. And framework designers said, oh, well, that's okay. People want to do REST, so we'll build in an implementation into our framework so that people can do REST. And that's good, except for when people then take that implementation, those implementation choices made by the framework designers, and say, oh, well, this is REST. No, this is just one particular recipe. There are other ways that you can do it. What is really important is the effect. In the case of our chocolate chip cookies, the effect we want is happy kids. It doesn't really matter what the recipe is, as long as the kids are happy and they enjoy the chocolate chip cookies that we give them. That is what we are trying to achieve. The recipe is not critical. And the constraints help to achieve this effect. The fact that they're cookies and there's chocolate in them pretty much combine to like, provide the desired effect. In REST, we have a set of constraints that anybody who spent any time looking at REST will be familiar with. Client server, stateless, caching, uniform interface, layered, code and demand, whatever. Right? That's not really what is critical. What is critical is the desired effect we're getting. Scale, evolvable, fault tolerant, composable. And you may not require these desired effects, in which case you may not need to apply all of these constraints in order to achieve those desired effects. But the idea that of REST is that if you do follow these constraints, you will get these effects. So. One of the eventual people always seem to get into these debates of what is rest and what is not rest. And the favorite line is, that's not rest. And what I always tell people, if you ever get faced in that kind of debate, is you just ask, well, what constraint is being violated? And what is the practical neg negative impact of violating that constraint? And if you focus on the effects rather than whether it is or isn't rest, you'll get a whole lot further. The other thing to consider is the fact that, well, kids love oatmeal cookies too, right? You don't have to do rest in order to build distributed systems. There are other ways. Chocolate chip cookies are not always the best option. If you've ever been on a long car ride on a hot day, you know chocolate chip cookies will make a big mess in the back of your car. You've got to understand the costs and the benefits of choosing particular architectural styles. Probably the most common style of REST APIs that you'll run into is what I call JSON REST. And JSON REST tastes great, just like Ptim. Now, if you're not familiar, Ptim is a traditional Quebec-based delicacy. You start with French fries and cheese curds, and you pour gravy on top. It's fabulous. It's quick and easy to make. It's really cheap. However, there is a downside. Long-term consumption of said dish may be detrimental to your health. And this is a little bit like Jason Rest. It's quick and easy to do, but it could be detrimental to your health. Now, what exactly is JSON REST? Well, it's what you see all the time, right? You go to documentation, it tells you, gives you a big long list of URLs, and for each URL it says, okay, this is what you're going to get back from it. These are the methods that you can use if you can do posts. This is what you're supposed to send. These are the status codes. So this is what people have been doing for a number of years, just documenting all the details about a particular API. And that becomes effectively the contract. And we're sort of used to this in local computing, just defining exactly what an API accepts and responds. But you know, there we have the compiler to check to make sure everything's okay, right? Distributed systems are kind of different. Uh, contracts become more tricky to manage because the client and the server, they're often managed by different people. So 
Now, you can throw in a little hypermedia to your JSON REST, and that does help evolution by adding a layer of decoupling. So it does allow some manipulation of server resources without causing clients to break. But there's still out-of-band coupling there with regards to, well, this URL returns this particular uh, shape of response, and you're still not completely doing self-descriptive messages by returning plain old application slash JSON. So it still requires a certain amount of pre-arrangement and these kind of contracts. So if you're curious, this particular poutine is available at a restaurant called La Banquise, which is uh, in Montreal. So if you're ever in town, make sure you stop by La Banquise for a wide variety of semi-healthy poutines. There's still french fries and gravy and cheese underneath uh, those vegetables. Now another interesting thing that uh, we're starting to see in some APIs is this use of media types that are specific to the particular API. And APIs are using this media type as a way of documenting the conventions for their entire API, and they're including that media type in the content type that's returned back. So again, this is one step closer to this notion of self-descriptive messages, and again, helps evolvability. Uh, it, it allows this idea of being able to put the version in the media type so that you can simultaneously support multiple different versions of your conventions uh, within your existing API. Again, preventing the need from having to create a new, whole new version of the API. And this is a great step forward because media types are what are supposed to be the contract that we use in REST, not really the doc documentation. Uh, but it doesn't exactly promote sharing and reuse outside the walls of the company. You know, GitHub have created their conventions, but it's unlikely that you know Bitbucket are going to borrow that media type and go and reuse it. We're also starting to see many other media types appearing that are solving part of the problem of documenting API conventions. These media types that I'm listing here, they help you by providing conventions for including links and forms and lists, things and embedding resources. What they don't address is, is kind of application domain semantics. There, you, there are techniques where you can take these media types that have kind of the formatting semantics and connect them to schemas and profiles, vocabularies, ontologies, uh, to define the remaining. So they, they kind of solve part of the problem. It's worth being aware of these media types because they're starting to get more and more popular. Things like the new uh, Amazon API Gateway, uh, to access their API to manipulate the gateway, you use how uh, as a media type. Um, Google have uh, got on board with JSON-LD quite a bit. The new Nougat is using JSON-LD. Uh, if you're using Ember, you might be using JSON-API. So there's many of these formats that are starting to get widespread adoption. So some more chef suggestions. Be aware of the effects of your design choices. It's okay if you do not need to use, if you do not need all the effects that the full-blown REST attempts to achieve. You do not necessarily need to follow all the constraints. But if, if I may rant for a moment, it drives me nuts when I hear this phrase that says, well, no, I'm, I'm, I do pragmatic REST. Um, no, what, what, what people mean when they say pragmatic is they mean, well, we don't want to pay the cost of doing this extra work, but we don't really know what the benefits are. Because if you knew what the benefits are, then really you're not doing pragmatic anything. You're just making a design choice, right? This is the whole point of engineering, is evaluating pros and costs, pros and cons and costs and benefits, and just choosing the appropriate constraints to apply to get the effects that you want. So screw that pragmatic bullshit. It's just understand 
the choices that you make and the effects of those choices that you make. And media types are a vastly underused concept in the world of API design and web design and uh, it's well worth understanding what the intent of them are and learning from other people who have designed media types. There's actually quite a lot of them out there that have some really interesting uses and it's well worth being aware of what's there. Even if your end decision is not we're just going to use application slash JSON or application slash XML, that's fine, but be aware of what's out there. It's always good to understand the different styles of APIs that you may run into. Data-oriented APIs are a common style. Also, you'll sometimes hear them referred to as CRUD APIs. And the primary purpose of this type of API is to just give you simple access to all the data owned by the API provider. There's really no assumptions about why you want to access or how you might combine that data to achieve certain results. It's fairly easy to do, but it doesn't really add much value to the data itself, and it can have certain performance challenges due to the open-ended nature of the way you access the data. At the other end of the API spectrum, you have scenario-based APIs. It's like some foods are designed for special occasions, like this birthday cake. And with this approach to building APIs, where you focus on scenarios, it's easy to start small with just a couple of specific scenarios that you know your users truly want to solve, and then add new scenarios as required. And it's the best way to keep control over performance, because you can optimize for the exact task that your users are trying to achieve. And Hypermedia is very useful for doing this kind of scenario-based API because the Hypermedia guides the API consumer through the application workflow. However, clients are very different because you have to build them to follow this ritual to achieve the attended goal. Clients can only make requests when presented with links to follow. And you use link relations within the documents for the clients to discover these links. They become the point of coupling. And all of a sudden, when you're dealing with these kind of scenarios, caching becomes really useful. Uh, now, and if you're going to take this approach, don't expect to get up to speed really fast, because as I say, building the clients really is quite diff difficult. Now, unfortunately, we have a catch-22 situation here, is that in designing a good hypermedia API, you really need experience consuming one. And getting good experience consuming one requires access to being able to have one to actually try consuming. So this is one of the reasons why we haven't seen a whole lot of adoption because there's this catch-22 hurdle to get over first. And so Chef's suggestion in this area, data-oriented APIs are great just quick and easy exposing internal data um, or if you are a government institution and you need to be able to provide open access to data it, it's very effective uh, somebody's got to pay for uh, those servers to expose that data and you got to pay when people do ridiculous things to access the data ask the nougat guys what it costs to expose data in a raw crud type format uh, if you are in the business of trying to sell API services, then you really want to consider scenario-oriented. Restaurants change menus for variety, right? They want to encourage regular visitors to come back. Now, APIs change because people are actively using your API, and they want to use it to do more things. This is a good thing. You sh most good APIs start small and grow based on customer feedback. This means you have to accept that change is the norm. Trying to build a complete solution up front is like the API equivalent of waterfall design. The agile approach is where we build a minimum viable product first and then enhance it. And this is a much safer approach because you guarantee what you are building is what the customer needs and that you can continue to support it with good performance. 
but it requires being prepared to accommodate change on a regular basis. There's a false assumption that versioning is the way to deal with change. The problem is versioning is painful. Versioning is a way for server developers to push their problems onto client developers. Because unless you're going to stay on an old API version, then the client developer is going to have to update all their client code. Why not write client to withstand changes initially, and then versions become a lot more irrelevant? A little bit of extra effort in building clients can go a long way towards making a client application resilient to change on the server. And it's always useful to be a little paranoid about the people developing that server-side API. Maybe they're telling you, oh yes, this is never going to change. These are the only status codes that we're going to return. But that it's not necessarily in your best interest to trust them. You can build flexibility into your client. Don't assume that properties are always going to come back in the same order. Don't assume that properties are always going to be present. Don't assume that you're always going to get exactly the same content type return. Don't assume that URLs are going to change, that won't change. You can build infrastructure in to accommodate things or at least make it really easy if they do change to update your client. A little bit of paranoia can go a long way. So my suggestion here is accept the fact that change is good. And yes, you might have to version, but let's consider it to be a last resort. Achieving reuse is our holy grail. That's what we've been trying to do for so many years. It's the path to higher productivity. And the web has been really successful because of code reuse and look at how much code reuse happens in javascript look at the the web browser itself we use it for a zillion different purposes when really all it was ever designed to do was render html textual documents the api world is struggling to achieve significant levels of reuse and that's partially because we're trying to apply the concepts we're used to using in local system code to distributed systems. Code-based systems use inheritance and interfaces and libraries of shared types. But API consumers and plat providers, they have different platforms, different languages, different type systems. So it's much harder to achieve reuse using the same techniques. And we're still searching for solutions. We have, we're trying at the moment to build API description languages and search engines to find API descriptions so that we can achieve reuse. We're even now talking about patenting uh, APIs because we're worried about people reusing them. You know, the reality is there's very few examples of people reusing APIs or distributed APIs in the wild. Probably the Metablog API is about the only one that I've really come across that has any kind of adoption. Uh, and one of the reasons for this is APIs themselves are not really an effective unit of reuse on the web. These two diagrams attempt to visualize and allow us to compare how reuse works with APIs versus how it naturally works on the web. On the left-hand side, we have the client, which is the orange box, which is consuming APIs from different servers. And we have an example here where this green API is re-implemented on multiple servers. But in order to interact with those APIs, we must consume the entire API. What about, can we implement a partial API or is it an all or nothing proposition? If we need, the client needs to integrate between two APIs to be able to compose APIs into a complete system, all of that integration occurs down on the client. So there needs to be intimate knowledge of both services and how the two services can interact. If we look at how reuse occurs on the web, it is the media types and link relations that are shared. And so it's the, the messages that go between the client and the server that are shareable and the links between 
the resources that are embedded into those media types that are critical for reuse. And in this case, reuse is much finer grained. It allows the server to advertise mashups to the client by including links from multiple services in the same representation. And you'll notice I, I designated the boundaries of the server with dotted lines because the boundaries of an API no longer really exist. A, a media type can easily point to different resources on different servers. However, to make these messages and link relations as reusable as possible, sometimes we have to limit the knowledge that they contain because sharing knowledge, sharing too much knowledge limits reuse. I can give an example of this from the electronics industry that actually has a much better track record on reuse than the software industry. These two little circuit boards here come from a home automation kit from a company called LittleBits, and it's a temperature and light sensor. Now, they detect temperature and light, but they don't care where that light is coming from. Is it is the building on fire? Is it sun streaming through the window? Did somebody turn on a light or a heater? It doesn't matter. The whole point is as long as the measurement is below a certain threshold, the switch isn't flipped. Once the measurement goes above a certain threshold, it does flip the switch. And it is that ignorance of the details and focus purely on being able to take input and allow action to be taken purely on a very constrained knowledge that allows these sensors to be used in many, many different applications. Another analogy that I find useful for understanding the scope of the application semantics that should be conveyed by an API is this notion of cooking utensils, pots and pans. In our kitchen, we have many different types of pots and pans. They have different uses and different purposes. But even an individual pot and pan is not limited to cooking a single type of food. You take the frying pan, you can fry an egg, you can cook bacon, you can make pancakes in it. You take a pot, you can make boil potatoes or cook soup. So they are specialized but address a class of problem in order to optimize for simplicity and reusability. If we attempt to build, create one device that solves all of our problems, we end up with, you know, the Star Trek food replicator. Well, maybe one day we'll be able to get there. But in the meanwhile, I'll be cooking with my simple pots and pans. But there is significant complexity to overcome. People like... Not people like... Generic media types like HAL and Siren and Mason and Uber and JSON LD and JSON API, they're trying to solve a very large class of problems, and yet they still don't in themselves address application semantics. So you need to layer profiles and schemas and namespaces on top of those already fairly sophisticated media types. And yes, maybe we will one day have the Uber solution that solves all of our issues. But until we get there, let's not forget that we can just build simple pots and pans to get the work done. Now, there are risks, too, to building specialized media types. First of all, it's like every media type needs a written spec. We don't want to be writing a new specification for every single endpoint that we produce. And you have to be wary of overly specific media types. We have some cooking utensils here. We have a waffle maker. There's not a whole lot else you can build with a waffle maker. 
Um, sometimes it is absolutely necessary. Sometimes it's just overkill. You know, popcorn machines. Yes, you can also just cook popcorn and boil in in a vat of fat, right? There are other ways of doing it. So this is definitely something to be aware of, to be cautious of. I'm curious if anybody knows what the device in the bottom right-hand corner is. Yes, that, that, is, that is an asparagus pot. One consequence of what I'm suggesting is that, yes, we will need to build clients that support multiple media types. Our advantage is those media types are simpler media types. And we get secondary benefits in that if we build clients to support multiple media types, it allows media types to change over time when we discover that Jason's not the cool and hip thing that it is today and tomorrow everybody's going to be using YAML. We can evolve our client systems because we built in the capability to support multiple media types. We can also once we accept the fact we're dealing with multiple media types, we don't have a problem supporting different clients that require different media types. Uh, this is not a, uh, a negative, in my opinion. Yes, it requires a little bit more work up front, but it does have advantages in the long term. Which brings us to Chef's suggestions. Consider using hypermedia types to enable client coteries. I think you'd be surprised what you can achieve them. And understand the contracts that you're using, whether they're explicit or implicit. One of the reasons I like to talk a lot about REST clients is because of this secret. It's the client code that dictates how coupled the client and server is. You can build the best hypermedia-driven server and clients can ignore the hypermedia and couple on the URI space. But on the other hand, you can build a plain old JSON REST API and clients can do all kinds of things to minimize coupling with that API. Client code is really important when it comes to allowing evolution of independent components. Server code helps to enable it, but just because somebody didn't follow all the rules of hypermedia is no excuse for not trying to minimize coupling on the client. Omakase is a style of ordering in sushi restaurants. The customer expressed their intent to have a range of sushi dishes prepared for them by requesting omakase style. But the chef gets to implement that request in the most effective way. And this flexibility gives possibility for the chef to deliver the highest quality food in stock for less than the regular price. Letting go of some control gives a certain amount of flexibility. It does require, though, that the responses that come back be completely self-descriptive because the client needs to react to those responses without the context of the request. This is also a very uh, naturally asynchronous way of working. It makes testing, the creation of the request, and the handling of the response much easier because you're breaking the request from the response. And it also facilitates uh, a mechanism of centralizing the response handling. Centralized response handling is very useful because it allows us to take advantage of HTTP's uniform interface. We can use a standardized HTTP response machine to allow all the requests that we make to use the same code for processing the same response status codes. So we get to have one place for redirects, retries, or authentication challenges. If we have scenarios where there needs to be different behavior depending on the request, then we can introduce the additional context of link relations. Sometimes when processing responses using the response machine, 
just knowing the header information that comes back as a response, i.e. the status code and the media type, is not enough to decide exactly what to do. Sometimes we also want to use the link relation type. What kind of link did we follow? And it's interesting that you can use this combination of link relation type and media type to combine the semantics of those two in order to really build sophisticated systems. I, I like to use an example of uh, if you are walking down the street and you're approached by a dog, what do you do? Well, I don't know. There's not enough information for me to make a decision to take an action. right? But if I were to say you're walking down the street and you're approached by an angry dog, right, that qualifier of the noun gives me some context to make a decision. Do I run like hell? Do I attempt to defend myself? You know, it, that additional information is gives you the context to allow you to make take action. I mentioned earlier that building clients that work with hypermedia-enabled scenario-style applications, APIs, uh, require a fairly different way of thinking about building clients. One of the most useful concepts in building these kind of uh, hypermedia-driven clients is this notion of a client state class. And you create a client side class that encapsulates the entire client state. And you can sort of consider it like a view model for your application. So this is kind of the pattern that what happens. You have this application controller that is the driver for the client application. And you get some kind of input from the user interface to say, okay, now we need to make a request to the server. So the application will make some kind of HTTP request and then the response comes back at some later point in time, is fed into the HP response machine. And the response machine updates the client state, this kind of view model for the application. Events can be fired as the client state model has changed. Because what you're doing is, um, I mean, REST is called representational state transfer. So you're applying the state that's come back from making the HP request onto the client state. And that transforms the current state into a new state. Events can fire, the user interface can be updated. And then the client application goes back into steady state and we wait for the next user interaction, which will then likely cause, potentially cause another round trip to the server. Say that now the user wants to do this and we get the server involved and the process repeats. And for our final chef suggestions, we'll just review breaking requests and response coupling brings flexibility to the client to be better able to adapt to changes in the server. Link relation types are your friend when it comes to having additional context in order to process responses. And we can use responses to transform client state in order to implement hypermedia as the engine of application state for scenario-based APIs. Hopefully the perspectives I've shared over the last 45 minutes have taken the edge off your hunger for API knowledge, well, at least for today. And I hope I've not left you with a bitter taste in your mouth. Unfortunately, we didn't have time to see any implementation details, but if you'd like to find out some more, I have some links here to libraries that I use to implement these concepts. Uh, in the past, I've built some of these toolings as small libraries that have fallen under the Tavis software uh, organization. And you'll still find a number of libraries there for media types, for discovery media types, problem, JSON patch. Uh, but I've just recently created this new organization, this new project called Happy Kit, where I've brought together a number of these tools as the basis for building client libraries 
for APIs, whether they're just JSON REST APIs or whether they're full-blown hypermedia APIs. These tools will hopefully allow you to build better API client libraries. A lot of the concepts I talked about, they, they haven't been developed in a vacuum. I have actually been building sample libraries uh, based on these concepts. The uh, client libraries that I built uh, for RunScope's API that I used to build a number of tools use these concepts. I have some samples around accessing Git's API in this technique. Also, uh, I built something for Salesforce. Uh, th these are not all complete uh, samples, but they at least give you the idea of how to build this type of client library. I'm in the process of building uh, a complete library for Stormpath API, and I threw together a little example of uh, using Troy's uh, Have I Been Pawned uh, API. I also have a number of other talks that cover related topics. Uh, one I did at Xamarin Involve, which uses hypermedia uh, to build mobile apps and shows you how to deal with evolving uh, mobile apps so that you don't have to go back to the app store to update your clients quite so often. Uh, I also have a couple that I did at NDC. One is crafting evolvable API representations which uh, talks about how to avoid the versioning problem, but this is from the server side's perspective. Uh, succeeding and failing talks about handling error codes from APIs. And uh, I did a talk at .NET Fringe where I go into detail about the libraries that I built, the link classes and the URI template libraries and things like that. Fortunately, that library uh, is not available yet. And although this class of Scotch has absolutely nothing to do with the talks, I suggest whilst watching the talks, the class of Scotch would be very recommended. And with that, I bid you bon appetit. My Twitter handle is Daryl underscore Miller. My blog is bizcoach.com. You'll find me on Stack Overflow, and if you want to hear more of my hoo-ha, there's the book Evolvable Web APIs with ASP.NET. Enjoy the rest of the conference, and if you see me around, feel free to ask me any questions or tell me how I'm wrong.